Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I'm going to talk uh, today uh, about uh, evolution and uh, talk about uh, the interplay between order and and randomness. A lot of times when people think of evolution, they think of the randomness that's involved. And I want to look at, uh, in particular, the amount of order that is there um, and maybe shift the way we view evolution. Um, And then Dr. Gage is going to give a response after uh, I uh, give my talk and then we'll open up for questions uh, after that. Okay. So uh, evolution uh, via natural selection is often depicted as you know, a relatively random process where each species sort of is the result of a long, highly improbable series of mutations. So you start with a simple organism, there's a bunch of random mutations, and you get what might be a complex organism. Um, <laughs> that's a subject for another talk. Uh, or you, know, you have a simple organism, you get another set of random mutations, and there's another complex organism. Or you know, we had a simple organism, there's another set of random mutations, and you get just another simple organism. So the idea is, you know, um, a slightly different set of random mutations and uh, humans never evolve from other primates. That, you know, evolution is a really contingent thing. That it's, uh, we're, we're lucky to, to be here in a sense um, from a, 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 a perspective of how many random chance events had to occur. Uh, you know, given the roughly four billion uh, year history of Earth, uh, the odds are clearly as stacked against us in that sense. So uh, a lot of biologists, like Richard Dawkins, he sort of adequately, he he really does a great job of summing up this uh, metaphysical consequences of this type of view, where he says natural selection is the blind watchmaker. Blind because it doesn't plan ahead, does not plan consequences, and has no purpose in view. So Dawkins, you know, he's not alone, but I, I think reading him is the best person to read because he writes really well, very clear, and he's very straightforward in what he believes. So uh, if you really want to understand uh, sort of the atheistic Darwinian perspective, he's the best person, I, I think, to, to read. And The Blind Watchmaker is by far the best book uh, of this uh, sort of genre. And he's not alone. There's abundance of like-minded uh, scientists and philosophers who claim that the lesson of evolution is that purpose and design have been banished from biology, and they're placed with some sort of uncold calculated algorithm that just led to, by chance, we have a bunch of bipedal hairy hominids running around the earth uh, today. Now, I think most people naturally sort of recoil at that, because humans by nature are purposeful beings. I mean, we we do things by purpose. We look at other people and we we extract a a, a purpose in what they're doing. We try to look at, oh, this is why you're doing what you do. We we look for purpose. Our lives are filled with purpose. And I think uh, this uh, being told that, you know, there's no purpose in the universe usually strikes most people uh, in, in the wrong way. You know, it's not something where, we're, oh, yeah, you're right. There is no purpose here. We, we tend to see purpose in what we do in, in our lives. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, aversion that we have to purposelessness goes a long way to explaining the increasing popularity of what's called the intelligent design movement or biological intelligent design. Now, I just want to make a distinction here as I'm talking to what uh, intelligent design. Intelligent design, when I'm referring to it in this talk, I'm talking about biological intelligent design, which is a distinct thing, which is um, 
people that argue that by looking at the biology, you can make a biological argument that, that uh, in a sense, a scientific argument that, that God had to intervene in the evolutionary process. Therefore, there must be some type of, of, of higher being. Okay? That's distinct from philosophical intelligent design, what I'll call it. All right? I mean, how many Catholics do we have in the room? Okay, good. All right, so you all, classify as, you, know, you would classify as intelligent designers in that sense, in a philosophical sense. So when I'm using intelligent design, I'm using it in that purpose. Okay? Now at the core of the uh, intelligent design movement is largely, I think, a reaction against this idea that we're nothing but a random byproduct of an evolutionary process. Um, and I think that is the uh, reason of sort of what drives their thought, okay? They're sort of trying to reclaim purpose. Uh, the way that they do it is like this, right? In a sense, they say, well, there's a simple organism here, a bunch of random mutations. There's no way random mutations could get us to a complex organism, so the direct hand of God has to stick in somewhere here. There's sort of a direct <coughs> intervention in the evolutionary process. But the reason they, th they, they argue for that is because they view evolution as just a bunch of random change going on, in a sense, and there's no way random change can get you to this. Well, maybe, but we can get you to, to all of you, let's say that, okay? <laughs> um, now, I'm gonna argue that the claim of purpose, the, the claim that uh, Dawkins makes, that the, the universe is purposeless, um, and the ID claim that God had to directly intervene are both based on a wrong understanding of sort of the science of evolution. They both overemphasize the randomness in evolution. And they make randomness sort of the, uh, uh, the primary thing. And I would say you have to switch this and say, the order in the universe is the inherent, uh, the, the primary thing that drives evolution. The randomness is sort of secondary. So if we want to understand evolution, you have to understand the order that is there. And that randomness is not the key player, it's secondary. Um, uh, and, and, and that's something that, that, that I want to explore here in this talk. Now, just to step back, I'm going to argue for, let me explain what I'm going to argue first before I argue it so that you can take a nap if you want to, wait to the end. Um, I'm going to argue first that there's a lot of physical and chemical order in the universe, okay, one, that that is essential for evolution to proceed by natural selection. And without it, you're not going to get evolution at all. Okay? So this order has to come before evolution. So there's this pre-existing order that you need. Okay? That's one. And the second is that evolution is not a random free-for-all, that this order directs evolution to certain outcomes. Right? And there is some sense of predictability in evolution. Those are the two things I'm arguing for. Now, if I'm wrong, which is quite possible, uh, that doesn't um, in any way impinge on the idea that evolution could be compatible with the Christian faith. Okay? If evolution was all random, right, it still could be <laughs> random in the, science, in the sense that I'm going to describe in a minute. What I mean, I'm going to explain what I mean by random. If evolution was all random, it still is consistent and can be consistent with the Christian and Catholic faith. Okay? That's a story for another talk. So when they ask me that, I can discuss that later. So I'm not, um, my, my faith and believing God doesn't ride on my argument. I just want to make, make that clear because I usually have bad arguments and I don't want my faith riding on an argument that I make. And I don't just get that out there now. Okay. So the first thing we want to talk about then is what is random, you know, randomness mean. So uh, randomness is often associated when you do something random as, as something that has no purpose, you know. 
You know, I was a random thought that guy said. It didn't mean anything, you know. Somebody's just jumping up and down on a subway train, you know, looking kind of weird. And like, well, they're just having random actions. So we, we, we have this popular perception. I think when you say random, that means no purpose, okay? And I think that, 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 that sort of drives the intelligent design argument a little bit and the atheistic Darwinism argument. But when, it, when we talk about randomness from a scientific perspective, we're talking about two intersecting events with causal independence, okay? So let me just read a little explain and then we'll go back to this picture here. So uh, when a biologist refers to a random mutation in some organism's DNA, he or she is referring to the fact that the specific base of DNA that gets mutated, right, and the object that does the mutating, let's say it's a, a ray of UV light, that those two things are causally independent. They're uncorrelated. It isn't as if the uh, piece of DNA is sucking in the UV light or directing the UV light or that the UV light has some type of homing device, like a heat-seeking missile, and going, I'm going to get that base right there on Mike Cirilla, Dr. Cirilla's, you know, uh, left cheek. You know, it's, it, it, it is, it, it's uncorrelated. Much to say you see this guy walking down the street and the piano about to fall on his head, okay? This is, there's two, uh, you know, cause events. This guy has a purpose of walking down the street. Somebody has a purpose of throwing the piano out the window, <laughs> you know. It's, my son who doesn't want to practice anymore. Um, uh, and, and, and it's going to land, and maybe it lands on him. These are two causally independent. Now, it, you know, it could be someone's trying to kill him with a piano. So they could be related. But let's assume that you know, these are two causally unrelated. This is a random occurrence that this guy, the piano, lands on him. Okay? And that's what um, I'm referring to uh, when I talk about randomness. Okay? Now, in uh, the scientists uh, we'll talk about, there's also this idea of statistical randomness, okay? And that is the idea of, uh, you know, if with, with DNA, you have DNA, and you have all these in this room, you have all these mutagens floating around, okay? And if you know how many mutagens are floating around and how frequently they bump into things, and there's the <laughs> DNA in a cell, you can predict roughly with statistically regularity, how many mutations might occur over a period of time, okay? So you have this uh, statistical randomness and it's commonly used to give probabilities to mutations. So you can say the probability of a specific base of DNA getting mutated in a bacteria is usually around one in a billion uh, per generation. So you, you can, it's still random, you don't know which one it is, but you can put some level of predictability uh, there, okay? Now, Random mutations are often referred to as the engine of evolution. Okay? And to some extent that, 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 that's true uh, because they are the raw material by which evolution or by, by natural selection works. But there's got to be more to it than that. And, and in fact, there is a lot more to it. Right? And even someone as um, uh, committed to sort of atheistic view of the world as Dawkins admits as much. So he has this, uh, you know, a quote in this book where he says, you know, mutation is random, right? And uh, random in the sense that I just discussed. But then he talks about evolution by natural selection is the opposite of random. Okay? What does he mean by that? Okay? Well, I get to what he means, but he's getting part of the, he, he's getting part of the way towards where I'm going to argue is that there is some order there. Okay? And that there's order there actually, in my opinion, in my view, is more important than the randomness. Okay? Now, how do, if he's going to say natural selection is the opposite of random, how, how opposite is it? <laughs> how much order there is? Is there enough order? Is there purpose and so forth? Can, can you come to those conclusions? Well, I'm not going to try to answer that one, but let's 
try to get into that, uh, that, that question about how random is it, is there any predictability, how determined is evolution, I'll try to get into that. And the best place to start looking at that is in uh, The Origin of Species. All right? I'm going to just talk briefly about some of the things that Darwin wrote in The Origin. Where is, okay. Uh, one of the things about the origin, I, uh, very few people have read it. It's a very long, boring, tedious book, uh, you know, but it's very, very insightful to see where Darwin is coming from, right? It's uh, uh, got a lot, it, it, it's chock full of quotes about law, the law-like behavior of organisms, the law-like behavior of heredity about order. He goes over and over and over again. He talks about the order in nature. It's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize about what is in the origin of species because so few people have ever read it, uh, read the whole thing. All right. So throughout the origin, Darwin makes repeated references to the laws of growth, the laws of heredity, the laws of variation, the laws of geological succession, and so forth. And in describing um, evolution, he states a, that it's a grand and almost untrodden field of inquiry will be opened on the causes and laws of variation, on correlation, on the effects of use and disuse, on the direct action of external conditions and so forth. So what Darwin actually thought is that there are some rules of evolution. It's just not just this random thing happens over here, this random thing happens over here. There, there, there's something <laughs> here that we can study and make sense of and predict and get some order to it, kind of like uh, what uh, Dr. Cirillo was talking about before, that you can extract patterns, you can see regularities <laughs> in it, okay? Um, and um, so one of the, the things that, that he stresses here is that he sees evolution by natural selection is sort of the logical outcome of a certain set of conditions, all right? That these conditions, you have organisms reproduce, Reproduction leads to variability, and more offspring are produced than reach adulthood. With those three things, by necessity, by law, you're going to have some change in organisms over time. Right? So at the root of his theory is this ordered, regular process. Now obviously, this variability here is going to be the result of a lot of random mutations that might occur. Okay? But the process itself is the result of a very ordered system. Right? And uh, that, that's what I want to talk about first. What is that ordered system? So why does natural selection work? Okay? Why is it that uh, over time, organisms will change and can evolve? Okay? Well, what order is needed? There's two things that you really, really need for natural selection to work. Okay? First, there has to exist stable, ordered entities. All right? And we call these organisms, okay? Uh, but theoretically, they could be other things. You know, you could have stable, ordered computer programs and do natural selection with those, okay? An artificial selection, it's a variation of a natural selection algorithm. The second thing is these entities have to reproduce and produce forms that are similar, yet not identical. Right? If they produce identical copy, you're never going to go anywhere. Nothing can change. I'm going to focus on the first one. Okay? The first one seems like uh, who can, yeah, it's a simple thing, but the amount of order that is necessary to get to that point is not something that evolves. It's not something that evolution by natural can produce. In a sense, it is a gift to evolution. That is one way to look at it. All right. So why do you need stable ordered entities? Okay? So for natural selection to work, what you need <coughs> is you need organisms 
that are relatively stable over their lifespan, okay? So that selection can work on them. So you imagine, um, you know, you have uh, a frog that changes into a newt and then changes into a chicken, right? Natural selection can't select for it because it's like a moving target, right? So they have to have stable entities. Right? It seems like, a, you know, an obvious thing, but why are there stable entities? Why don't we just randomly mutate into theologians or, you know, <laughs> philosophers? I don't know. You know, why, why, you know, why are we relatively stable our, our, our whole lives? And that, that is absolutely essential for evolution to work. You have to have something that is a relatively stable target to select for or against. Because if not, it's just going to be a bunch of random changes and nothing's ever going to make sense. Okay? So, you know, why are there stable? This is a picture of me over a course of 15 years, okay? And I still have the same big nose. I still have the same bad haircut, the same weird smile. It's just that I'm relatively stable. I'm getting older, but I'm relatively stable, right? And, 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 and that's, we live in a universe that has these relatively stable organisms, right? It's quite possible we could have lived in a universe where there are no stable entities. Everything's unstable, just swirling clouds of gas that move in and out. And there are no stable, complex entities. So to me, I think an interesting question that's often not asked is why do we have stable, complex entities? Why, why, why are you stable? Okay. Well, if you look at this, why am I a stable ordered entity? Okay. I'm, I'm refuting my own uh, argument here with that picture. Um, The main reason that you and I are stable is the proteins that, that make us up. In terms of biologically, why we are, we look the same way we look and, and uh, we have the same structure throughout our, our, our lives and why a frog is a frog is a frog, has to do with the order and arrangement of the proteins that make up your body. Now there's other factors, but I'd say the main one is the proteins, okay? So here's a bunch of uh, you know, uh, diagrams of, of, of different proteins, okay? So why are proteins stable? These proteins are relatively stable. Now they, they can uh, fluctuate a little bit and they have some, uh, some variability, but you know, this protein, this sandwich protein, unless you damage it, it's gonna be relatively stable if you keep it in a test tube for a while. Just like you're relatively stable unless we grind you up in something. You know, you say, <laughs> if, you, if you give them in the proper environment, you're relatively stable. Same with these proteins, they're relatively stable. Question is, why are they stable? Why don't they just, why doesn't a barrel sandwich just spontaneously become a barrel and spontaneously do something else? They, they, what's that? <laughs> Which barrels could become sandwiches? That would be better, right? Uh, so why do stable proteins exist? Well, the reason that these proteins are stable, you know, that proteins are stable and that they, they form these stable structures, okay, it's because they're made of stable elements, right? So we look over there at the periodic table of elements there. Um, it's up here as well. Uh, the, the, the fact is that, you know, the, these proteins are made of largely a lot of carbon, okay? Let's just look at carbon. Carbon atoms are, they're remarkably stable, right? The carbon in your proteins, or in my proteins, is identical to the carbon in a diamond, which is identical to the carbon in CO2 gas, right? The carbon element remains stable, and they do not normally convert into other elements, on, except under usually extreme conditions. In fact, transforming one to another, you know, the nuclear transmutation is, is very rare in terms of, in, in our world. It happens in, you know, in thermonuclear reactions, in stars, and so forth, but, but for the most part, we don't see that happening, okay? Um, 
if the carbon in our proteins was randomly just switching and becoming oxygen, and then, hey, you know, today I'm going to wake up and be magnesium and so forth, then our proteins wouldn't be stable. They're stable because these elements are stable. Okay. Now, why are those elements stable? Okay. Now, why do we only have roughly, I mean, uh, how many uh, stable elements do we have? Roughly about 100 that are relatively stable. And then you have these other ones you can make, they're, they're very unstable. And you can create more elements that last for a fraction of a mill. They're not stable. Why are there only a certain set of elements that are stable? Okay. Well, the reason has to do with the subatomic forces that, that hold them together, right? right? So the <laughs> subatomic forces that hold the nucleus together, the charge between the electron and the nucleus, the sources of the atomic core, why these are, or it has to do with, you know, the, the size of the proton and the neutron, which then has to do the size of the other subatomic particles, the spin and the charge, all of these forces there and uh, the subatomic particles lead to the formation of stable structures. We call them elements. Right? But the reason that they're stable is because there's this order on this level. Right? And the physicist uh, Stephen Barr, I think, sums this up the best. He says, the order which we see in nature at one level, right? say the level of the elements, is, has its roots, it's always going to have its roots in a more mathematically perfect order that exists at a deeper level. Okay. Each layer, as we've seen so far, is dependent uh, upon the layer beneath it. And as one delves down deeper into nature looking for the source of this order, eventually you reach bottom. Right? You reach fundamental particles, fundamental laws. Right? So proteins can be explained by atoms interacting, atoms can be explained by subatomic particles interacting, subatomic particles can be explained in terms of the underlying symmetries um, that, that exist. But what explains these symmetries? As the physicist Barr puts it, he says, we do not yet know because we do not yet know what the deepest laws of nature are. Right? However, there is no doubt that these symmetries of the presently known laws of physics have their roots in some still greater symmetry or profound principle of order that the as yet unknown fundamental laws of nature obey. The idea is that at bottom, the foundational level of the world, there is an irreducible order. Right? There's a certain point where scientists get to the point where you, you, you can describe the fundamental particles, the fundamental laws, but because they're fundamental, there's nothing below them. Right? They, that's just what they are. You can describe and quantitate them, but you can't say, why do they exist? Why do we have these ordered structures and laws and so forth that, um, that everything else is built upon? And without this foundation order, there'd be no symmetries. Without that, no subatomic particles. Without that, no ordered atoms. Without that, no stable proteins. Without stable proteins, no stable organisms or molecules that could evolve. Evolution is utterly dependent and it's dependent upon this order that's inherent in the universe. You don't get stable entities that can evolve unless you have an ordered universe. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the, the first point that I'm trying to make here. Right? Um, the atheistic chemist, Peter Atkins, he recognized this. He recognized the reliance of evolution on the order that's inherent in the universe, the order that is studied by physicists. Uh, Atkins uh, has a slightly different view, but he does argue that um, this is necessary and sufficient to get the complex biological world we see around us. So he states, once 
uh, you have this foundation order, and once molecules have, uh, stable molecules have learned to compete and create other molecules in their own image, elephants and things resembling elephants will in due course be found roaming the countryside. Right? So how can he be so confident? Right? Well, others might grant, okay, yeah, you need this order. This order is absolutely essential to get anything going. But, going back to what I started at the beginning, you can have an ordered cell, but because there's all these random mutations, it never evolves into anything. Okay? Or it evolves, devolves into something simpler. Right? What, uh, is there any uh, way we can look and say, uh, you know, given the highly contingent and random nature of mutations, is there anything that directs evolution in one way or another? Right. Is there any predictability, any order that drives it forward? Certainly you need order for evolution to occur, but you can say, yeah, that's great, but it's still random at the end of the day. And we're lucky to be here. We're just a bunch of randomly uh, evolved creatures, and there's no purpose and no design. Okay. Um, to, to really understand this part uh, of the argument here that I'm going to try to make, we have to really understand what is natural selection. Right? This is the thing that Dawkins said is the opposite of random. Right? And so what does he mean by that? Right? Um, when we say, when we use the term natural selection, you often have this anthropomorphized view of something in nature you know, directing and pushing things around and doing something. Right? That there's some natural selector out there Part of what Darwin wrote, he, 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 he used terms like that uh, where, uh, you know, he, he talks about natural selection scouring the earth for every beneficial mutation as if it's an entity that is out searching for things. That's not what natural selection is, right? Natural selection is merely a convenient term for the complex interaction between this transient variable mutating organisms and their relatively complex environment. And whenever variable reproducing organisms are competing for resources and survival within an environment, Darwinian evolution will occur. But what determines its trajectory, whether it follows you know, sort of a random trajectory or whether there's something driving it that we can predict, really depends on what that environment is. Okay. So some people argue that you know, mutations play a role <coughs> uh, the, uh, in, in organisms uh, evolving, uh, but because the environmental conditions fluctuate constantly, there's always different climates, different predators, competitors, food, and so forth, that the evolutionary trajectory is inherently unpredictable. You never know what's going to happen because we don't know what organisms are going to be here 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And so you can't predict where we're going to go, because you're going to have a totally new environment then, and until we know what that environment is, we can't predict how it would go. Same thing 100 million years ago. We had no idea what you know, organisms would have been there. We could have never predicted it. We can just go back and look, hey, that's what happened to be there. That's what the climate was, and that's what drove evolution. Well, I would argue that there are some things, there are deeper environmental conditions that influence evolution, and these are more fundamental things that do not change. Right? So if we look up at this slide, you see the organism in the middle. Okay? So this organism is, is under the influence of natural selection. It is interacting with a complex environment. And there are certain things that are going to affect whether it survives, like the climate, other members of its own species, right? you know, other species. They can put up you know, food sources, predators and competitors. And all of those I put a two-way arrow, okay? because there's an interaction between the two. So, 
the, this organism here influences the evolutionary trajectory of these species. These species influence the evolutionary trajectory of this organism. Right? I would say these are sort of the secondary causes. Right? The deeper causes I have there with the black arrows. Right? These are the physical laws and chemical laws that constrain what is possible and what can evolve. And those things don't change. Those things are there throughout evolutionary history. And, so, and, and they influence it. So if these things are more important, then you may be able to predict certain things should evolve, and they should evolve again and again. If we went back and re-ran the tape of evolution again, you would get a similar set of organisms, a similar set of proteins, and so forth. If these green things dominate, if you went back and re-ran the tape of evolution, what you should get is something totally different, because you don't know what organisms are going to exist at any given time. Right? So why would I believe that these black arrows dominate, that you can maybe make some predictions. Okay. <clears throat> One of the most interesting examples, and I think the best example to illustrate this, is protein evolution. Okay. So I'm going to use proteins, proteins as an example of how physical and chemical laws sort of drive evolution and constrain evolution where you get the same thing over and over again. Okay. So let's look at that. So this is a background for people that haven't taken a bio biology or chemistry class recently, um, what does a protein um, look like? Okay, so in this slide you can see here's a, uh, a protein, let's see here, now let's use this slide, this is a better one, okay, here we go. This is uh, a protein, okay, each one of these balls here uh, is called an amino acid. Proteins are made of amino acids. There's 20 different ones that are biologically relevant. There's more amino acids than 20, but there's only 20 mainly 20 that are biologically relevant. And so here's five examples of these things here. Uh, to make a protein, what you do is you string together a bunch of amino acids. So in this string here, you, know, you might have, you count them up, you might have 100 there, okay? So um, a typical protein might have 200 amino acids strung together. Some might have four, some might have 600, some up to 1,000, some are relatively small, but let's say on average 200, okay? Uh, so if you think about it, the number of possible protein sequences is virtually infinite. Right? So each one of these balls could be one of 20 letters, 20 amino acids. Okay? So think how many combinations you could have. It's, it's virtually unlimited. You know, it's virtually infinite in terms of the amount of time that the universe has been, been around. Right? It seems like uh, there, there's no way that you could make, evolve all the different possible sequences. Okay? Um, so you might be tempted to think, well, evolution stumbled upon the proteins that are found in our body just by random chance, by just, you know, these, just by sheer luck, it came up with the right sequence to make the protein collagen that, that, that makes your bones strong. And by sheer luck came up with, uh, you know, the protein lactase to break down lactose. And it, by sheer luck came up with keratin and so forth. Okay. But underneath this, there's a lot of order. Okay. So if you just take um, a chain of amino acids, it doesn't matter which one it is, chains of amino acids will fold into only two secondary structures. So you have basically an infinite array of amino acid sequences. Right? And a lot of them don't fold into anything useful. A lot of them just fold into garbage. But the ones that do fold, fold into only two secondary structures. One over there is called an alpha helix. This is one that's called a beta sheet. 
Okay? And the reason they do this is because of the chemistry. These are very stable given the chemistry of amino acids, right? and given the commonality between all the amino acids. So despite there being a, you know, a near infinite array of possible amino acid sequences, proteins fold in only two distinct secondary structures. And they do this because these are chemically stable structures for change of amino acids. So if evolution were to run again, you have amino they're going to fold into alpha helices and beta sheets because those are stable based on the chemistry that the world is dealing with. Okay? So, um, you know, this is just the start. Now, once you have proteins folded in alpha helices and beta sheets, you can arrange them into different forms. Okay? So what you can do is you can take these alpha helices and turn them into certain three-dimensional structures. The arrangement of alpha helices and beta sheets converge on only about a hundred, sorry, a thousand different protein folds. Okay? And so if you take any protein you want to study and you crystallize and figure out what its structure is going to be, you don't find a novel structure. You find that, wow, it's one of these a thousand that we already have an idea of. It's somewhere between 500 and a thousand. And they, they're very similar. There's sort of variations on these folds. So you can see here's a sandwich one here. It's got a bunch of beta sheets here in pink in the middle, and then you have uh, like the bread on the ends, these alpha helices. So this is one possible arrangement. Here's a roll one where you have the beta sheets like a bun, and then you have the, the alpha helices like a hot dog. It's another possible. When you only have two secondary structures, there's only a certain number of ways you can arrange them. And so you have re a, 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 that, that are stable. Right? And, and uh, uh, Michael Denton uh, a, a, has written a, a number of papers on this. He's a biologist who wrote in, in, in this, uh, uh, this quote here, organizational rules, what we call laws of form, which govern the local interactions between the main structural submotifs. So these are the interactions between alpha helices and beta sheets. Okay? These have been identified, and they restrict the spatial arrangement of the amino acid polymers to a tiny set of about 1,000 allowable higher order architectures. So basically, you have an infinite array of primary sequences but they can only fold into about a thousand different possibilities. Okay. In addition to that, you might think, okay, well, there's a thousand different possibilities, but there's only one sequence that folds into possibility one, and there's only one sequence that folds into possibility two. If that were the case, you're, you're likely never going to get there, right? Because you're not going to be able to find that one sequence out of this huge, vast array of possible sequences. But the interesting thing is, is if you look at one of these folds, and you look at the sequences of a bunch of proteins that fold, their sequences are totally different. Right? And just to give you an appreciation from this, these are, you line up a sequence here of, a, uh, of an enzyme uh, called aldehyde dehydrogenase. And it has a, a, this is one of the folds that it, uh, of this enzyme that it has here. And you line up only the black lines show, this, this black column here shows where the sequence is identical. So each one of these lines represents the enzyme from a different species here. Okay? And these, uh, these letters represent the amino acids. And you can see, like in this position, there's all different types of amino acids here. Again, there's all different types. There's only this place here, this one here, this one here, this one here, 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 and here. Only about 10 places where the sequence is identical. Everything else is just sort of variable. And the reason is because, for example, in this region here, you only need an alpha helix. And there's so many sequences that can fold into that alpha helix because that's a relatively stable structure. So the idea here is that evolution converges on it. You rerun evolution again, what are you going to do? You're probably going to find these same 1,000 protein folds because that, you're running evolution under the same physical and chemical constraints that exist 
because you're dependent upon those. That's the, that, the, the, those things don't change. And so we jump back to this slide, these physical and chemical laws that are in cha uh, not changing in, in the four billion years on Earth are driving the evolution of specific structures. So <coughs> what drives the evolution of protein folds then, I would argue, is not randomness. Although random changes in the sequence help evolution sort of get to these stable forms. But it is the order in the underlying physics and chemistry that attracts evolution to the same folds and forms over and over again. So physical and chemical order then works on two levels, all right? And that's what I've argued for so far in this, this talk. The first is allows evolution to proceed at all, okay? You need that order to allow for the existence of the type of stable entities, complex entities that can evolve by natural selection. And then second, and that was what I just finished up with, it determines which structures will work in this specific ordered environment. There's only specific proteins that can fold and be stable. The randomness of mutation plays a secondary, but, more, um, but it, it is an important role. Right? It allows organisms to effectively search sequence space for that which is already there, and that which is already there are these ordered forms that we see around us. Right? So thanks. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming, and thank you especially to Molly for organizing this and for having me, and to Dan for his, uh, for his very thought-provoking paper. Um, all right. Let's see if that'll hold. All right. Well, um, I have the unenviable task of following um, such a good presentation, and, um, but, I, but I'm happy to do so, so thanks again for, for inviting me to participate. Um, now, Dr. Keebler set up his paper as a sort of uh, via media, sort of middle way, right, between the intelligent design proponents on the one hand and Richard Dawkins uh, on the other. Um, and, but I wonder, and I'm just gonna give a few uh, critical comments, so I should say by way of uh, uh, preface that I don't mean to be uh, critical in the, in the negative sense, but critical in the sort of constructive sense, right? Um, I wonder if, if, if he's really succeeded in walking this middle line. Um, so he quoted Richard Dawkins as saying that natural selection is a blind watchmaker, blind because it does not see ahead, does not plan uh, consequences, has no purpose in view. Um, but I wonder actually if Dr. Kilber disputes that view. And so, um, so I don't know that it, he's offering us necessarily a middle way between Richard Dawkins' view of, um, of natural selection. He hasn't argued, I guess best I can gather, that uh, natural selection is anything actually but blind. I think, you have this, I think he has the same view of natural selection, really. Um, Sort of, sort of to continue with the analogy, I think maybe, maybe what's going on here is that uh, Dr. Keebler seems to think that it just isn't a big deal that natural selection is blind. So it's the same view of natural selection, but maybe it just isn't a big deal that he's blind because sort of it's like a pathway before the blind man is so constrained that he has to end up in the same spot. In other words, it doesn't matter that he's blind, right? That's the, uh, I take it, what's going on here. Um, and so I don't know that he's challenging Dawkins particularly on any, any of these uh, points, though of course he doesn't agree with his atheism. Um, now, uh, <laughs> it's important, that's an important difference. Um, now, his, yeah, so here's what I wonder, is I wonder whether Dawkins can say, okay, okay, uh, it's true, evolution isn't an anything goes process, but it's almost an anything, go an anything goes process um, in, in terms of what will actually end up evolving. So, um, similarly, I, th I think while it seemed that Dr. Kibler seemed to be disputing of uh, many of the claims of the intelligent design movement, um, 
I don't think, I actually think that he's really in significant agreement with them on, on quite a number of uh, fronts. So much of what he said is actually very similar to, uh, and I didn't know later in the paper you're going to quote Michael Denton, but Denton himself uh, is in many ways an intelligent design proponent, especially uh, see his book uh, Nature's Destiny. Now, Denton is, uh, by the way, if you don't know who this guy is, he's an Australian biologist who really, he was actually basically the biologist who inspired the intelligent design movement uh, when, when uh, his book Evolution, A Theory and Crisis came out in the 80s and was read by Michael Behe and Philip Johnson. Um, and so, uh, or, or similarly, actually, I think there's another similar argument to uh, that intelligent design people make too um, that reminds me of what Dr. Keepin wants to say, and that's the, the book of um, our own Benjamin Weicker and uh, my friend Jonathan Witt, who have a book called A Meaningful World, in which they argue basically for design at the level of physics and chemistry. Um, now, insofar as um, Dr. Kibler is implicitly sort of arguing that there are interesting constraints on the evolutionary process, for instance, at the level of physics and chemistry, from which we can infer, say, purpose or intention or plan or sort of constraint toward an end goal, um, that is basically what we call design, then I think he actually uh, makes an ID, an ID argument, though I know uh, he probably doesn't like that label, of course. Um, and so uh, I think ID proponents really, though, would welcome such arguments and inferences. Now, um, he seemed to indicate that ID is committed, though, to uh, one thing that I, I do think was incorrect is that he, he seemed to indicate that um, he thinks ID is committed to intervention in nature, right? And I think this is a popular characterization of that view. Um, but I don't think that's really the best way to think about it. By the way, thinking of intervention is actually a very awkward thing. Christians often say this in the sciences, and I find it rather puzzling, right? Intervention. What does that mean for God to intervene in nature as though he's like this foreign invader from outside, right? Rather than like its rightful imminent ruler. Um, it's a strange metaphor, I think, uh, think for Christians. But there's, some sort of, there's a fear here that if you allow sort of direct divine action, um, which, by the way, I think we're actually already committed to as Christians on a number of fronts. There's a fear that like we won't be able to do science anymore. Um, I think that fear is, is unwarranted. But at any rate, um, a number of prominent you know, intelligent design proponents like Michael Behe don't think there's intervention anyway. All they're arguing is that there are sort of empirically detectable signs of intelligence in nature. It doesn't mean that God necessarily put it there sort of de novo and said, let there be a bacterial flagellum, boom, right? Um, it's not necessarily that at all. In fact, I think Behe actually very much disagrees with that view. Now, um, Dr. Keebler also reminds us that natural selection sort of preserves mutations which are beneficial to the organism in its current environment. And of course, talk here of preserving, and it's all metaphorical, right? Preserving or choosing or operating on uh, mutations, that's all metaphorical. Um, and in fact, so actually talk of natural selection itself, is, I hope you can see, is, is a metaphor. Um, there's lots of articles in the philosophy of science literature about this, this interesting metaphor. Um, basically, it means that like, things die and reproduce at different rates, right? It's not like there's you know, like a, something guiding the process. I think we're all in agreement on that. Um, now, well, well, he's right that natural selection shouldn't be characterized as random. That's, of course, true. Um, I think it's, it's still important to see, though, that I think that on Darwinian theory, the creative engine, the thing that's actually providing the raw materials for everything to work with, is uh, supposedly random mutations. And so, uh, in other words, so natural selection plays a preservative role, right? The mutations get to come up with all the interesting stuff, constrained as it is, as he argues, by physics and chemistry, but it comes up with all the interesting stuff nonetheless, and natural selection sort of preserves it. Uh, or, in other cases, sort of, uh, sort of negative evolution sort of kicks it out, right? Um, so even adding Dr. Keebler's previous design inference about the stability of physics and chemistry, the, uh, I guess the worry about whether this process, if it were run again, would result in anything like the same things, and especially the thing we care about, of course, is humans. Um, whether or not it would do that, I think, uh, still remains uh, sort of a worry here. 
Um, so as Dr. Kibler said, the underlying stability of physics and chemistry is a necessary but not a sufficient condition, right? You all remember this from philosophy or at least one, one of your philosophy core classes, right? Uh, a necessary condition is something you need to get something else, right? A sufficient condition is one that is sort of sufficient to produce it, right? And so, um, so I think, the, again, the worry here is that whether or not these interesting things that he's pointed out in physics and chemistry are actually sufficient to um, get the same or similar sorts of organisms if the evolutionary process were uh, sort of rewound and run again like a videotape. You all don't even know what a videotape is, do you, right? Um, you know, it's kind of like a DVD, but not really, all right? Um, so so um, here's, uh, I guess, I, I guess uh, maybe to start off our, our Q&A time, and, and it's okay if we have to go to the panel, maybe uh, Dr. Keeler could um, answer one or two of these things for us there. But um, I just have two questions to sort of start this off. Um, I guess first, I guess I'm wondering how, e how easy it is in his judgment to, uh, for evolution to sort of uh, random mutations to actually generate these various proteins that we need, especially the ones needed for human beings in the first place. Um, so for instance, it's one thing to say that if you're gonna have proteins, they have to be like such and such, uh, given the underlying physics and chemistry. But it's another thing to show, and I think even granting the special nature of physics and chemistry, it's another thing to show that random mutations really sort of are likely to generate and hit on all the functional folding proteins that we need to build um, living organisms, and again, the one we care about, namely us. Now, um, one reason to think that this isn't actually so easy, and there's some discussion about this in the literature, is the work of my friend Douglas Axe uh, when he was at Cambridge University Center for Protein Engineering uh, for about a dozen years. Axe's work, uh, he's basically worked to estimate the frequency of functional folding protein sequences, or uh, amino acid sequences, um, in sort of sequence space, sort of like, what we mean is like the total possibility. How likely are you to hit on the, the ones that actually fold and, and do, because right, you all remember this from biology, they have to fold into the right sort of shape to be able to form, form most of the functions that they need to do. And so, um, as he reports in a series of articles in the Journal of Molecular Biology, that there are sort of severe sequence constraints. He deals mainly even with uh, sort of short, short strains of amino acids, like 150 amino acid strains. And, um, and so the question is sort of, um, well, put it this way, while functional proteins have similarities about them, um, they seem to be, in this, in this sort of argument, they seem to be like, more like islands of function. And so you're not very likely to hit on them, either through a random search or especially, here's another way to put the problem, is how do you get from one island to another without losing functionality, right? You all remember this, if it loses function, it's more likely to be sort of, shall we say, deselected, right? Rather than um, sort of promoted by natural selection. So um, it just doesn't look, um, at least by, by some of these estimates, that one can make extensive changes to these functional amino acid sequences without destabilizing the protein fold and hence losing the biological function. Um, so when such changes occur in an organism, I take it that the expectation of Darwinian theory would be that natural selection would eliminate them. Now, it's true that some proteins can, form, uh, can perform their different functions with essentially the same fold, um, but it seems like most of the time proteins that perform, say, novel functions, you're going to need some sort of novel fold, uh, so is my understanding. Um, and so uh, it seems like, likely that, that new organisms in the history of life, for instance, right, when you see the appearance of zebras or something cool like that, um, it seems like they're going to need new protein folds. And so uh, what I want to ask, I guess, uh, the first question here, but it's a long-winded way of asking the first question, which is this, um, whether or not, you know, I want to know what the best Darwinian story on this front is. Is it highly improbable or is it not that we're going to hit on these different islands of function? It seems like by some lights, it's, it's, uh, people are arguing that it's quite improbable. Um, and second, I think, but much more importantly, um, what I want to ask is this. 
Um, even assuming that Darwinian evolution could easily hit in the, by the way, in the time allowed, given the number of organisms we have, have had on the Earth, even assuming that it could find all the relevant uh, functional proteins, I guess I wonder if Dr. Keebler uh, really thinks that anything in the nature of protein folding itself or proteins themselves makes humans or anything like them inevitable, such that we're likely to get them again if we were to rewind, uh, <laughs> I keep using this bad metaphor that you have no idea what I'm talking about, um, if we're likely to rewind the tape, right? Um, and so um, that's the part of paper I'm not, I'm not totally sure that I understand. So the, for instance, the under, put it this way, this is my overall impression of the paper. If, the underlying worry for Christians isn't that the process is totally random. I'm sure maybe some things people have said make it sound like that's our real worry. It's completely random. And I actually agree that that's overstated. But I think the worry is actually much more like this. It's not that it's completely or totally random. The key issue and the worry, I think, for many Christians is, is this. Um, whether the constraints that he's talking about are enough to get us human beings. That's what we really care about. And so I can't see, I guess, how anything in the nature of proteins even granting the underlying physics and chemistry, uh, indicates that random mutations were going to hit upon human beings or anything like them. It just doesn't seem at all necessary. Um, even if the underlying physics and chemistry is a, is a necessary condition for us getting there, it isn't, doesn't seem sufficient. And so uh, if, if nothing uh, in the nature of proteins guarantees this, and if God didn't leave it up to chance, as I doubt that any of us think that he did, then what precisely, I guess I'm wondering, is God doing to ensure the outcome? Because I take it, listen, you know, no matter how you read the book of Genesis, surely it's committed to this proposition. The proposition that God wanted human beings to exist rather than something else, right? So it isn't just a matter, right? So Ken Miller at Brown University, uh, the Darwinian biologist, often, often says something like this, well, God, you know, and he says he's a Catholic, right? And he says, uh, which I, I don't have any, don't mean to doubt his sincerity. I'm sure he's sincere, but, but this doesn't sound like a very Catholic view to me. He says, well, all God really wanted was maybe like, you know, something with brain power, like a big brain dinosaur or mollusk, right? And, uh, and I don't think really that that is the view that uh, many Christians want to hold. And so I'm wondering, what is it supposedly about the nature of these proteins that, uh, if anything, is going to lead us toward human beings rather than, say, something else? All right. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to uh, interacting with you and to hearing the responses of the panel. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.